be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For you're bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing more than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all aspects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. That they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. And for in him, for in him we live and move and exist or have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man, therefore having overlooked the times of ignorance. God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed among also whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. In 399 BC, the philosopher Socrates was tried before the Areopagus Council, just as Paul was. The crimes he was accused of were twofold. Firstly, of corrupting the young, and secondly, of impiety. The impiety charge was made up of two parts. Firstly, he was accused of failing to acknowledge the gods of the city, and secondly, of introducing foreign gods, foreign deities. You see, the Athenians had a pantheon of gods. Many of us will have come across them if we've watched um, things like Jason and the Argonauts, which I was brought up on, or uh, what's, the, what's the one they've just redone? Clash of the Titans, those kind of films. And you see these Athenian gods being portrayed in all their glory. And it was thought by Athenians that worshipping these gods, if they worshipped them, it would preserve the well-being of the city. And so they looked severely on anyone who tried to introduce a foreign god because actually they were not honouring the gods of the city and potentially they were bringing disaster on the city. And so anyone who advocated a different religion was only worth putting on trial. 
In fact, the Jews and the Christians, ironically enough, were known as atheists to the Athenians because they didn't believe in their gods. There's a certain irony here. As Paul, the father of Christian theology, is put on trial on some of the same charges as Socrates, the father of philosophy. Paul, too, is being accused of bringing in foreign deities into the city and potentially bringing judgment of the pantheon of gods upon the city of Athens. For Socrates, the outcome of his trial was that he was invited to take his own life by drinking hemlock. But it seems that by Paul's day, the citizens were more interested in talking over new ideas than bringing an atheist to justice. And so Paul is in the midst, and he has this opportunity to bring teaching to these very religious, very devout people who have a pantheon of gods which they can choose from, but they're supposed to worship all or any of them. People like Zeus, Artemis, and to name but two, Nike. I think we worship Nike these days, don't we? (laughs) The god of victory. Tick. But specifically picked out here are two bands of philosophers Firstly, there's the Epicureans, who seem to be fairly commonplace, and then the Stoics. What did they believe? Well, when I was young, Epicure was a brand of pickled onions. Everyone remember that? What does does Epicure sum up to us? What does it mean? (laughs) I think that's a pedicure. (laughs) They do it with fish these days. Um... Epicure, what does it mean? Hmm? A good feast. Sumptuous. Well, let me tell you what the Epicureans believed. Epicurus was a philosopher of the 4th or 3rd century. And they didn't believe that the gods actually intervened in the earth. They, that the gods were up there and they didn't actually take part in men and women's lives. And so they, because we were just on earth without any intervening from any deities, they said... What we're here for is just to have pleasure, just to live for pleasure, just to enjoy ourselves, just to get as much pleasure and have as little pain in our lives as we can possibly manage. Does that sound familiar to anyone? (laughs) Now, they weren't just total hedonists because they did believe in actually testing and finding how how far one's desires would lead you and then stopping at that point and not going beyond. But they were basically hedonists. They believed that the purpose of life was to pursue pleasure, but not necessarily, as is the case today, in order to to dissipate yourself, but to bring you to peace, to forget your troubles, come on, be happy, and to forget your pain. How many people live their lives that way today? You only have to go out on a Friday night in Beverly to see how many people are trying to get the pleasure of lots of alcohol in them and forget the pain of the week. So there's the Epicureans on one half, on one side, who who were there debating with Paul, who just believed life was about pleasure. Then on the other side, you have the Stoics. What did the Stoics believe? 
Ten years ago, I was involved in a car accident. Somebody came up behind me, shunted me, and I got some whiplash. And within the settlement, there was um, um, an element of damages that, that, that was going to be paid. But the other insurance company didn't want to pay it. So we ended up in court. And I was describing the symptoms, pain in the neck, and the fact that although I was suffering this pain pretty much every day for a year, I wasn't taking tablets because I didn't believe in filling my body full of tablets. And the judge described me as being stoic. And that helped win the case and win a small settlement, which wasn't much, and it's all gone by now. But we use this term even today, stoic. What does it mean? Putting up with, bearing, long-suffering, yes. Well, the Stoics um, believed in self-control and fortitude as a means of overcoming destructive emotions. It held that becoming a clear and unbiased thinker allows one to understand and be reasonable. And so they believed that destructive emotions which disrupt our peace and well-being flow from bad decision-making. If you make wrong decisions, you get yourself into a place of bad thinking and you get the emotions rising and you lose your peace. That's what they believe. So you have to keep yourself under control and keep yourself strong. That's the way to peace. The wiser we are, the less subject to free-flowing emotions. The more virtuous we'll become and the greater will be our sense of well-being. So on the other one hand, Paul is debating with pleasure-loving hedonists. And on the other, he's debating with those who are self-controlled and disciplined in their lives and perhaps not enjoying life too much. And into this mix, Paul steps, it being put effectively on trial before them. And in his speech, Paul basically goes on a full frontal attack on their theology, on pagan worship, on worship that the Greeks were all involved in. He takes their theology apart piece by piece. First of all, he deals with the accusation that's been made against him. The accusation is that in teaching about Jesus and about the divine, he's bringing false gods in. So Paul starts by saying, well, I've been walking around your city, I see you religious people, and there was one statue over here to the unknown god. And that's the God I'm going to tell you about. So I can't possibly be bringing false gods into the city because I'm talking about one of the ones you're already worshipping, even though you don't know who he is. So he deals with that claim. Quite simple. And then he goes on to enlighten them further. Next, he attacks the notion that gods can live in buildings. Of course, Athens at the time was full of temples. Everywhere there was a temple to this God and a temple to that God. And Paul says, look at all these temples. Gods can't possibly live in temples. They can't live in things made by man. The creator of the universe can't adequately be represented in a statue made with human hands and thought out by human minds. God is bigger than all of that. How can God fit into the the shape that you conceive for him to live in? If this divine being is really the creator of all things, he's far bigger than you can possibly fit into a shape of a statue or worship in a temple. He's beyond all that. So Paul basically undermines their theology of, of their gods. 
And then he contrasts the fatalistic religion of the Greeks with the creator God who's in control. You see, again, these Greeks had this idea, well, not the Epicureans so much, but the others, most other people in Athens, had the idea that the gods just played with us. As as, uh, King Lear says in, in King Lear, he says, as flies to wanton boys are we to the gods. In other words, as a boy takes a fly and pulls the wings off, well, that's what we're like to the gods. That's, that was the idea that the Athenians had, that, that we would just play things, that they would mess around with us for, for their pleasure and then discard us if they didn't feel like playing with us anymore. That was their idea. And Paul, Paul is basically saying, that's not what God is like. God isn't treating us like playthings that we just, he just messes around with from time to time. God is in control of all things. He set the world, people and seasons in their places. And he's so self-evident in his creation that men shouldn't be stumbling about in the dark trying to find him, but should be able to perceive the creator just by looking at his creation. For in him we live and move and have our being. So Paul is contrasting this small-minded pantheon that they've got with the creator of the universe who is there for each one of us and it can be found not by groping out in the dark, but just by looking at his creation and worshipping the creator from that point. And then he concludes by saying that the gold and silver images that adorn the city of Athens are just symbols of their ignorance. The people of Athens believe that not to worship these images would bring divine retribution upon the city. But as Paul says... That to not worship the creator God will bring that judgment upon you as individuals. He says, up until now, although the world is guilty, although because of our sin we deserve nothing but judgment as a, as a species, because of the way we treat one another and the way we treat our world, up until now, God has held back from judging. He's held back in mercy to give people time to find him. But he says a time is coming when God is going to return in the form of his son to judge the world. Brothers and sisters, that's nearer now than when he spoke it. There is a time of judgment coming and everybody is going to have to stand before God. There is no exceptions. And all the judgment that God has stored up, we have a decision at that point. Are we going to accept that Jesus has died in our place and taken his judgment upon us? Or are we going to stand there and say to God, well, I wasn't too bad. I was all right. Let me have whatever I deserve and then I'll carry on into glory. It ain't going to be like that, folks. There is a judgment coming. And that's what Paul says. God has appointed a day for judgment. But now is the time of mercy when he says it's the opportunity for you and me to repent, to get ourselves right, to lay aside these, this ignorant philosophy of the way we've been living, to lay aside all of these things that have governed the way we've been shaping our lives and to get ourselves right with the creator who made us and caused us and has given us all that we have. 
This is the day of salvation. This is the day to get things right. This is the opportunity. It's not going to last forever. Now is the time of God's mercy. And it's the opportunity, the window we have until Jesus returns again to get ourselves right. And then Paul says, God's confirmed it. The proof that Jesus is coming again is the fact that God raised him from the dead. And at that point, most of the Greeks turn off. We don't believe in resurrection. You see, for Greeks, they had this idea, most of them, that everything that was spiritual was good. And everything that was physical and of the earth was bad and evil. And so the idea that anybody having released their spirit out of their body, why would you want to go back into that dull, dirty body? And so the idea of Jesus rising from the dead was terrible to them. But Paul says, no, actually, Jesus didn't come just as a spirit. And it's not just your spirit that he's interested in. It's your whole renewal and the renewal of creation and renewal of your whole person. Because God just doesn't love our spirit. He loves us because we are made in his image. Even in our fallenness, even with the wrinkles and so on, we are still imprinted with the image of the divine creator. And so many rejected him at that point because their philosophy, their mindset, their theology would not let them hear the words concerning Jesus. But one or two listened. And his words divided the crowd. Paul's message is just as relevant for our world today as it was for first century Greeks. Today, within our society, we have basically two types of people. Those who live for pleasure, who have no concept of the eternal consequence of their actions, but live in the moment in order to shut out the pain of daily existence. It might be through alcohol, sex, Drugs, sport, food, music, fame. All of the things which our society holds dear and is obsessed with. On the other hand, there are those who live good lives with a level of self-control, who do no harm to anyone, act altruistically, who live a quiet life in peace with people and seek to get through their three-score year and ten with the least hassle. There are, of course, others with destructive intentions. But for these, for the most part, these two categories make up most of the population. And you'll see, just in identifying that, that it's the same audience that Paul addressed. But what was his opinion of them? Basically, he says they were ignorant. Now, that can sound offensive, but it's not meant to be. It means they they were stayed In the dark, when the light was being shone. They were ignorant because they didn't embrace truth. And it's the same ignorance we encounter today. People are so consumed with their material existence and getting through life that they fail to take into account or even consider that there might be something beyond or outside of this life. And sometimes we are so concerned with the enjoyment of the moment And of minimising the hassle of life. That we forget that there might be eternal consequences 
to our actions. There was a film made in the early 80s, Dead Poets Society. Everyone seen it? It's a film I particularly like, but I'm not necessarily on the same level or same opinion on the philosophy behind it. Basically, the teacher takes these young public school lads down before uh, rows of photographs of past members of the school. And he basically says, there was a glimpse, there was a, a moment when they were captured in that way. Most of them have gone on into lives and mo- many of them have died now. He says, we're food for worms, lads. And then, of course, he says the thing that people have come to repeat constantly these days. He says, carpe diem. Seize the day. In other words, take life's opportunity because you've only got a few years, therefore do whatever you can with it in order to make life as as good as it can be. You see, that's how many people live their lives. Just seizing the day. Let's live for the moment. Let's do what we can. Let's enjoy it while we've got it because it's not going to be here forever. Well, actually, (laughs) here's the rub. We are going to be here forever. Just depends where we want to spend forever. And if life is just about seizing the day, it's pretty pointless. You see, the Big Bang Theory, as taught in our schools, has provided a way of explaining existence and life without God. Now, I'm not saying the Big Bang Theory is wrong. I don't know how God made the universe. But to to suggest that everything has come about just by chance without a creator being involved... It's stupid. You look at the, the, the actual probability of it happening just by accident. I said this in the Y course the other week. There's more probability that the stones of St. Paul's accidentally fell into the right place and built St. Paul's than that the universe came into place just by accident. And yet people believe it. They swallow it because the teacher says so. It's suicide. It's... Mental suicide, as far as I'm concerned, just to believe it's all an accident. Stupid. Ignorance. And yet the world swallows it. Hook, line and sinker. Why? Because if we can believe that, we don't have to believe in God and we don't have to live our lives in the truth that there actually might be a God out there who wants to bring us to account or that loves us. If we can avoid the fact that there might be a God, we can live unaccountably without anybody looking at us. We can do what we like. That's why society has embraced that position. But Paul's argument and my argument are that this is just ignorance. It's not meant to be derogatory, but simply to say that people don't know any better because they've never asked. They've never inquired. It's lazy philosophy. The reality is, and this is what Paul teaches, God in his mercy has held back the judgment that the earth deserves in order to allow people time to respond to the salvation he offers. Because, why? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son 
that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The holding back of his judgment is the divine act of mercy and love poured out upon this world. That God gives time and has given you know, several thousand years for people to come and to grasp hold of him and say, Creator God, I want to receive your mercy and your love. But a day is coming when he will return to judge the earth. When we will be brought to account for our actions. And we might live as if we're unaccountable, but the reality is that one day we will be brought to account and justice will be served. But right now is when eternal life begins. A life lived in relationship with God. And that comes by coming and accepting who God is and what he's done. And life begins now. I have given you life and life in all its fullness, Jesus said. Life in fullness begins by embracing God and embracing the Son and embracing what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Right now, humanity still has the opportunity to repent. To repent. What does repentance mean? It's a religious word with connotations, but it simply means this. I'm holding this set of beliefs, I'm holding this set of values, and I'm going in this direction. But I'm going to lay that aside, and I'm going to take on a new set of beliefs and a new set of values, and head in this direction, in conjunction, in hold, hand in hand with the living God. That's what the word repentance means. I'm going to take on all that he's done for me. I'm going to connect myself to his kingdom. And I'm going to allow the grace of God and the love of God and the mercy of God to come and fill me. And to do this results in a restored relationship with God and a life now lived, not for self, but in a way that will bring bring true fulfillment. And then Paul, just in the midst of this, deals with those who have never heard the message. And he picks this theme up in Romans 1.20. He says this, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, have clearly been seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. He's saying... There are no people who can stand on the day of judgment and say, well, I didn't know, never heard. He's saying, creation itself speaks of a creator. If you respond to what you see in in creation and recognize that there's a creator behind it and worship the creator, then you've responded in faith to what you've seen. The world around us speaks of a creator. And our failure to respond to that loud voice is our choice. We all choose the philosophy under which we will live our lives. Even if it's the cho- just the default philosophy of society in which we live. And we will all live with the consequences of that choice. So what are the implications for us as Christians this morning? Well firstly... We have a responsibility to bring people out of that ignorance and into the knowledge of God's salvation. We have a responsibility to tell people that Jesus is coming back. That Jesus loves them, but he's coming back. We have a responsibility to make this salvation known. We can't sit back and say, well, they could have found out for themselves. 
Just toughen it. It's like standing on a riverbank with a rubber ring in our hands watching a man drown. Which of us would do that? See, we have the means of bringing God's salvation to people. This is what God has commissioned us for. Let's take every opportunity to help people understand all that God has done for them. And to bring them to that place of freedom in Christ Jesus. So we have a responsibility. Those who know must tell. Secondly, we have a responsibility to live in the good of our salvation. See, we live in a material world. and It's very easy to get caught up in materialism. Especially we who live in the West, who have so much. Life can become a chasing after the next gadget, a better car, a bigger house, more stuff, a next relationship. All this is meaningless. A chasing after the wind, as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes. If that's what we're living our life doing, then we're not living as God has called us to live. It's all meaningless stuff. It's rubbish. We need to live with an eternal perspective. That that into which we invest ourselves needs to be that which will withstand the time of testing. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3.10 that every man's work will be tested by fire. What are you building with? Gold, silver and precious stones or wood, hay and stubble? What are you building your life with? Because it's all going to be tested. So we have a responsibility to tell, and then we have a responsibility authentically to live in the good of all that God has done for us. Because that will model the salvation that has come to us through the cross and through the resurrection. Paul's message to the Athenians was very clear, as you will have seen this morning. He didn't pull back. He didn't hold his punches back. He went straight for it in dealing with the issues of that society. Sometimes we pussyfoot around, don't we? We don't want to offend people. But actually, the truth is offensive because it requires a change. Let's not be those who pussyfoot around. But let's be those willing to tell the truth. Because people need to hear it in order to be saved. In order to come into relationship with God. To receive his mercy and grace. To live in the good of his love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great mercy. Thank you that you have held back judgment and have worked out, Lord God, your salvation. And that, Lord God, you have not left us in ignorance, but you've given us the truth. You've helped us to know what you have done for us on our behalf. And I pray, Lord God, that we might take seriously that knowledge, that understanding, and might be willing to share it at every opportunity, and also to live authentically as those you have saved. Lord, let us be a people who make a difference. Let us be a people, Lord God, who who model that difference. 
And Lord God, influence, an influence for good in our society. Bring in salvation, bring in restoration, bring in healing, bring in wholeness, bring in all that's on your agenda to bear in people's lives. Thank you, Father, for your love to us. Amen.